Hey, this is Gerd Handel, and welcome to the Inner Light Project. This show is for anyone who's wanting to lead a happier, healthier, and enlightened life. Create more self-love. Inject more joy and abundance into their daily life. Join me for inspiring interviews and spiritual topics so you can shine your inner light. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Inner Light Project. My name is Gerd Handel and oh, this week, oh, I'm just so excited to share this person because she's just amazing at what she does and she really fits into the theme of this month of sobriety which we're having on the show. She's just an amazing soul and she's helping people to live more alive in their everyday life. She is a spiritual teacher, leader and helps individuals to seek the courage to think big, solve challenges and really live a life that they love. Her name is Kate Manser and she's just a beautiful soul and we really talk about our journey of both being sober and how it shifted our life and and Kate really talks about how she transformed her whole life not just the drinking aspect but all areas of her life to come back home to herself and it's so powerful and I just can't wait for you to listen to this episode. Hi Kate, I'm so grateful to have you on the show and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Gerds. It's a beautiful day to be alive and a privilege to be here with you today. Oh, bless you. I just can't wait for this conversation. We've just been talking beforehand and oh my God, there are so many similarities and just the power of sisterhood is such a blessing. Oh, oh my goodness. It, it is. And I I have sort of lone wolf syndrome. Like I, <laughs> I sort of default to lone wolf. And so that's why it's so important for me to be intentional about connecting with people and community and man it, it really is interesting how if we want to learn something in life like how infrequent it is that we can just read something in a book and then and then it just like we can seamlessly it, you know impart it into our lives we need relationships like those are our practice grounds and that's where we learn about ourselves and one another in the world 100%. I think that's where we've been sold this idea in the western like world that you know we have to do everything alone but actually Everything is community. Everything is being part of a group. Everything, the it more is. we're in a group, the more we feel heard and understood, right? Oh, it is. And, you know, I like to call people, You, I mean, I have a lot of sand grains in my life, but I have a lot of people that are sand grains. And so if you think about a sand grain, right? And uh, mm. like, for example, one of my sand grains is my brother a sand grain that i used oh. to have that we might talk about more is my uh my alcohol use mm. um but what these sand grains are and the friction that people or um any any challenges that we have disabilities loss as painful as they can be and how difficult they can make our lives they're also shining us into pearls because you know if you think about like i said my brother he's uh we just, we don't see eye to eye. <laughs> and as much as he is my sand grain rubbing me the wrong way, I am absolutely doing the same thing for him. So I am not saying that he's right or I'm right. Uh, but in that relationship with my brother, you know, in this place, in this area that where we grow in relationships, I'm learning empathy. I'm learning mm. patience. I'm learning love. And that's, those are qualities of the Kate that I want to be. And so this, um, you know, my brother being my sand grain is polishing me into the person that I want to be as challenging and frustrating as it might be. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, is he older or younger? 
He's my little brother. Yeah, I'm oh. the oldest. I have a younger sister and a younger and my younger brother. And um, and yeah, we get I mean, we we're not like not speaking uh, yeah. <laughs> and we hang we can hang out. But yeah, we definitely drive each other crazy about 50 percent of the time. I have a brother, brother as well. And it, I've, what I have learned is that we are our biggest teachers. He teaches me stuff. I teach him stuff. And those kind of, you know, awkward moments are there for us to heal whatever we, whatever they're mirroring to us. That's the thing, you know, I think about in my life, you know, the outfit that I'm wearing right now or the last skincare cream that I bought or the last song that I listened to or the last tip that I heard. And I realize I'm just a product of my community. And that community includes who I follow on Instagram. It includes my family. It includes my friends, my neighbors, you know, what I watch and everything that I consume. And what that makes me realize is like, it's really important for me to surround myself with people that inspire me and lift me up. And even people that frustrate me if we're learning along the way. And the other thing that helps me realize is that as much as those people are my teachers, we are these shining lights for everybody mm -hmm. around us. And so I always like to say, oh, we're the, we're the writer, the director, and the main character of our lives. And I always have to do a hair flip <laughs> even though I have really short hair I have to do this like faux hair flip when I say main character which is true right we are the writers mm. the directors and the main characters of our lives even though sometimes we act as just the players but don't also forget that we all have an audience and people are watching us all the time and if you're looking for purpose in life and how you're making the world a better place oftentimes it's just in the way we show up on any given day mm, that is so beautiful wow it's so true. You never know who's watching you. Um, I want to go back a bit, though, actually, because I know we kind of jumped a bit. <laughs> but um, what was your life like before you became a spiritual leader? Oh, well, you know, I spent all my time and energy just checking off those boxes of society that I thought I was supposed to be checking off. I was being a good girl, checking off the uh, the marriage, the dog, the job that I, you know, thought I, I wanted. I got another dog. So I checked that <laughs> box twice, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to make this certain amount of money, right. And uh, trying to look a certain way, trying to fit in. I was just really, uh, you know, I, the way that I was brought up was, was very much, um, you know, do what you're supposed to do. I wasn't mm -hmm. given a lot of spiritual teaching. You know, my parents were good parents. I was provided for, yeah. They loved me, uh, but they didn't do a lot of like guidance. And so I was just really left to think, okay, well, what is, what do my parents want of me? What does society want of me? And I started climbing that mountain. And then as happens to a lot of us, I think at some point in our lives, is I kind of got to the top of that mountain and I had the two dogs and the husband and the <laughs> job and the money and all. Of, and I was like, whoa, I think I'm on the wrong mountain. <laughs> and that was when I, I just, I had a reckoning, right. I had to wow. really look at my life. And, and I mean, the first thing I did was not become a superhero and fly off that mountain to the next mountain that I wanted. The, the next thing I did was kind of go into a period of feeling very lost and depressed. And, um, before I finally got the courage to make some changes. Wow. Wow. That's so powerful. And it's so interesting what you're saying because I feel like it's it's quite a normal pattern with women 
and I've I've noticed this just with the clients that I work with and people I, I've known my whole life that we don't even realize that we're people pleasing it starts from such a young age that we don't even know we're doing it so you know when we're a child we're born like you know we're so free when we're a little we're a little toddler we're just running around going la 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 don't really care and then suddenly society family school you name it all different environments start to tell us as little girls who we are meant to be and suddenly you know don't do that don't speak that way don't raise your voice you know be a good girl be a good girl that's what we hear all the time right and before we know it we lose all identity of ourselves and it gets to like I call it like either the court life crisis or the midlife crisis where we're like this is not what I want what the hell have I been doing my whole life and it's like almost having a heartbreak but it's but it's also a breakthrough to actually come back home to yourself oh my goodness beautifully said and you know, I can say for myself that one of the most profound moments in my life was the moment, and it really was a moment. It was like a light switch flipped on in my mind where I realized, oh, I can do whatever I want with my life. <laughs> it was truly like, I mean, that was, it was such a shocking revelation, but, you know, we all get, uh, absorbed in the myopia of our lives and following the next thing and next achievement, but really just waking up and thinking. And and one of the ways that that happened was uh, a friend of mine, her and her husband, they, they kind of did that. They, my friend was on a reality show on the discovery channel called out of the wild. And then her and her husband bought a sailboat and they wow. sailed from San Diego to Tahiti and they started living this life at sea, you know, living off the the sea and off grid. And they kept inviting me down to come stay on the sailboat. But I was, you know, working at Google at the time. I had this important corporate job that I was very <laughs> focused on. And I also had a husband that was not really excited about traveling and didn't really like me traveling by myself. And so for years I was just like, oh, I can't take off time from work. Oh, I can't. And then through a series of other awakenings, I finally ended up, which we'll talk about, but I finally ended up down on that sailboat. And when I went down and I stayed on that sailboat, it was just amazing. It was seeing them living this alternative lifestyle and seeing other people from the UK and Australia and Italy who had left their lives in cities to go be crew on a sailboat for a few years and people who had left everything in India or Canada to come live on the island. It That wow. was really when I saw other people who had broken the mold and they were doing it, that was what inspired me. And I think we'll talk about our sobriety journeys as well, but I'll just loop that in here because, you know, growing up in uh, in the U.S. and particularly in the state of Wisconsin here, which is one of the most alcoholic states in this country, alcohol wow. is just such part of fabric of social and community life in all of the U.S. and I think in a lot of the world and particularly where I grew up. And, um, and it was like, I never even realized that being sober was an option until I was in my 20s, like my late 20s, which sounds bananas, like, but truly it didn't occur to me that you can just not drink. I just thought like, oh, when you get together with people, you drink mm -hmm. and that's the main thing that you do. And so that's why, again, going back to our 
point at the beginning of this conversation is how we are all lighthouses for one another. If you are sober, if you live in alternative lifestyle, if you, you know, read books, if you love, you know, collecting unique marbles, like these are all points of inspiration that can change other people's lives. Wow. Yeah. That's, it's amazing what you're saying. I'm blown away because it's, it is, it's all about environment, isn't it? You know, your environment shapes who you are. So if you think, you know, drinking all the time is normal, then that's who you become. And I was the same. So I grew up in um, my my family, are Indian and we're Punjabi. And within the Punjabi community, alcohol, alcoholism is such a big thing. And so I wasn't allowed to, well, I wasn't meant to drink in my community, <laughs> but as a girl, it's so, it's so sexist, by the way, mm-hmm. when I was growing up. Um, but it was when I was about, oh God, yeah, I was about 13 or 14 years old when I had my first drink. And that, and that was me just trying it out, you know, being a bit of a rebel, but then suddenly it became part of my life. And as I got older and older, you know, like what you said, when I worked as a journalist, you know, you had to go to a meeting, you had to go to events and, you know, everyone had a glass of wine or, you know, you'd have to sit there or when you'd go clubbing when you were at college or university, it was normal. And then it was when I actually was like, you know what, I don't fancy drinking for a week. And everyone around me started laughing at me saying, oh, you can survive. I was like, no, I'm going to do it. And then it went from a week to three months to six months to now here we are 10 years. And it is the best thing I've ever done. And I know from what we were talking about, it's the best thing that you've ever done, right? Oh, absolutely. And isn't it amazing how when we take one big step or one baby step towards living life on our own terms, whether that Mm. be getting sober, whether that be going and taking a job that's maybe not what your parents want, or whether that's wearing a unique outfit that's maybe kind of edgy for you (laughs) on a particular day, or, um, or, you know, being ruthless about how you spend your time, whatever, you know, living life on your terms means to you. But what I have found is like, when we start taking a baby step in that direction, it just it creates this wave of, of like, power that that makes Mm. me feel continually more and more empowered and of course there are a couple steps forward one step back right I'm not just like constantly living this brave thing like I get scared I get worried I get self-conscious just as anybody else but there is absolutely something there is something about just taking one step and then how that empowers us to continually take more steps toward living our most vibrant and empowered lives. And, you know, I, I told that story about realizing how I, you know, how we can do whatever I want. We can do whatever we want with our lives Mm -hmm. as that being, uh, you know, so shocking at when I was 28, but actually it was an absolute gift that I realized that at 28, that wasn't late, late at all. Many people don't realize that until they're 68, 78, 88, uh, when they have far less time. And so I feel so blessed and grateful. And for you as well, Gerds, it sounds like you had your quarter life awakening and it radically changed your life. And so anytime we can have that awakening, it's never too late. hundred percent. And the thing is, sometimes people don't even have that awakening in this lifetime, Kate, right? And, you know, we are so blessed to have that in this lifetime. You know, it doesn't matter what age it is. And I think, you know, a lot of us, like when we're growing up, we have this like competition or we're like, oh, well, so-and-so is doing this and, and you know, so-and-so is doing that. But their timeline is different to yours. And I feel like we both were meant to wake up at the time that we did. We both were meant to look at alcohol as a way and go, hmm, that doesn't sit well with me anymore. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure you had the same thing. Like 
I had to mourn the career that I had built up from such a young age and let that go. I had to mourn no longer drinking. I had to mourn letting go in old friendship circles. I had to mourn, you know, what you're saying about, you know, family and friends not understanding the path that I was choosing. And I think that's something a lot of women have to do when they're on this journey of coming back home to themselves. And I feel like it's happening more now than ever before. You know, women are making more money than ever before anyway. You know, they're having the freedom more than before. But we're kind of stuck in some of this old patriarchal beliefs that, you know, we have to have we have to make sure everybody else is okay except for ourselves. Oh, beautifully said. And and it just makes me it just reminds me how important it is to continually check in with ourselves and our own intuition. And my path of awakening is, you know, it's my unique path and I'm grateful for it and I'm proud of it. But I actually had my my awakening around 28 and I didn't quit drinking until I was 34. So what happened was I, uh, I had three friends die in the span of six months and they were all around my same age. And this was in, I believe 2013 or 2014. And that was not my awakening. Actually, what that did was that was the first time I really came to grips with mortality. Mm -hmm. And so some of you listening might identify with the fact that I actually went into a deep death anxiety. Some of you might have done some of the things like I have, which is like being afraid to leave the house. I was obsessed that I might die at any moment. And I was terrified of that. Anytime the phone rang unexpectedly, I was sure that it was going to be bad news. And, um, and I was, I lived a year like that, just totally in fear and counterintuitively what broke me out of that was a fourth friend of mine died. My friend and Google colleague, Dan Friedenberg was climbing Mount Everest and, uh, he was up on the mountain when the earthquake struck in Nepal on April 25th, 2015. And he was killed instantly in an avalanche up on, on Everest And that caused me to look at everything differently because Dan was a person who was so playful and so fun and so vibrant and also did a lot of really cool things in his life. Like he had a way cooler job than I did at Google. (laughs) And he also, you know, was just... He played playing pranks on his friends. He started an environmental nonprofit. He just played with life and lived life on his own terms. So after he died, I had to contrast my life living in fear with the way that my idol was living with courage and playfulness and adventure. And I realized that we all have a limited quantity of time and energy in our lives. And I could put my time and energy into trying not to die, or I could put my energy into living. And so from that day on, that was when I started the You Might Die Tomorrow project and people started reading my blog and people started buying my stickers and t-shirts and it just, it kept snowballing. And then finally I wrote the You Might Die Tomorrow book. I also traveled around the world. I left that marriage around that time as well. And it was just like so many aspects of my life turned around, but what hadn't changed was me drinking. And I grew up with an alcoholic parent. I grew up like we talked about in that environment where just everybody drank and it didn't really occur to me that I couldn't drink, but I was definitely at odds with how, you know, alcohol was weighing me down. And as the You Might Die Tomorrow movement grew, and as I grew into this new identity that I was coming into as an inspirer, as a spiritual guide and mentor, I began to feel like a fraud because all of my projects is are about 
it's about life. It's about feeling alive. It's about mortality. Sure. My book is called You Might Die Tomorrow, but it's really about how can we feel alive in this precious life that we have? And yet here I was wasting a big portion of my time anesthetized, right? Which is the antithesis of feeling alive, anesthetized mm-hmm. by alcohol. And I, at, there was a point in my life where I thought alcohol made me feel more alive, but as my addiction went on and uh, I found that it was, it wasn't really fun anymore. I was thinking about drinking. I was trying to avoid the fact that I probably did have a problem. And so I spent several years feeling like a fraud. And that was really one of the reasons that I knew that I had to stop. And what gave me the motivation to stop was realizing I love life. And if I truly love life, why am I giving it away to a substance that's making me forget, that's making me feel dark, that's making me feel like I'm losing time rather than gaining time, is making me feel less alive rather than more alive. And that helped to change my life where four years after my first awakening, I got the new awakening of my sober life. Wow. Wow. I'm just blown away. I, I, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Gosh. There were so many aha moments as you were talking. I was just like, wow, it's it's so beautiful that, and I'm so proud of you for for coming back home to yourself because so many people don't have that opportunity or are not aware that they can. And you were like, you know what, fuck it. Like life's too short, you know? And the thing is, I know you were saying like, you know, you didn't, you didn't do it straight away, but the universe does this thing. And I don't know if you've noticed it, you'll get little testers <laughs> and the little testers come and I'll, I'll give you an example. So when I was growing up, like I had a lot of health problems. And so when I was 21, I had a car accident and I had short-term memory loss. And this was during my final year. We call it university. You guys say college. Um, and I was just like pushing through. I was like, no, I need to succeed. And then the accident happened. And I was like, oh, I'm fine and carried on. And then another time something else happened. My left arm stopped working when I was in Canada. Wow. <laughs> I collapsed. Again, I was burnt out. I wasn't listening. And then it was a big whammy when I was turning 25th and I had a cancer scan. And I was like, oh, now I need to listen and pay attention. So I, I feel like the universe does that where it'll give us small pockets. And then if we're not listening, it's like, bam, here you go. Now, now you're going to have to listen to me, whether you like it or not. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And, you know, I am a firm proponent of whenever we talk about awakening to talk about how that does not by any means make me like walking on clouds and free from problems and challenges. And, uh, and it just, there's new challenges around every corner. And that was another big aha moment in my life, which came actually just last year. So last year was one of the most challenging years of my life. I went into the deepest depression of my adult life and Another big realization that came out of that was again, realizing like, okay, for the last many years, I've talked about feeling alive and how being alive and feeling alive is a privilege and it's a value that I hold in the highest regard. But in the midst of my depression, I was just so angry to be depressed. I was so angry that things weren't going quote unquote my way. I was just pushing away the pain and the shadow with all of my might. But then I had this, and this was not like a light switch realization. This came over time. I started to see, oh, and again, I felt sort of like a fraud. I was like, oh, Kate, you talk about how you love life. You love life. You love being alive. But here is an integral part of being alive, pain, 
challenge, mm. struggle, and you are pushing it away with all of your might and giving it no space and no value. And that was when I began to realize that I need to integrate a practice of embracing my pain, honoring my pain, understanding that pain and suffering are a part of being alive and need to be revered just as much of as joy. And if I really want to say that I love life, I need to learn to respect and value the full spectrum of being alive. Oh my God. Thank you for saying this. Cause this is what I feel like a lot of people don't understand, right? That, you know, you can see within the spiritual community and a lot of communities like, oh, we've got to be happy all the time. No, that isn't life. You've got to ride through the emotions. You've got to feel, deal and heal whatever you're going through. And, you know, we, we can't just like, you know, whack on a manifestation and be like, everything's going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. We've got to go into the depths of our pain and understand what's happening and and be kind to ourselves. Because I feel sometimes in those moments, we are, we're the most harshest to ourselves. We're not nourishing ourselves in that moment or being understanding to ourselves. Um, And, you know, I I can relate with what you're saying, because it was like 2014, my grandma passed away. And my grief, like I ignored my grief and I was like, no, 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 I can deal with this. Mm-hmm. I can handle it. And I ran around and I carried on doing what I was doing. And then it hit me in 2018 when my uncle passed away. So my grandma's oldest son passed away. It, and I just had an operation a month, two months beforehand for my kidney. And I had nowhere to run. I had to face it. And in that moment, I just, I felt it. I I healed the, the the grief of losing my grandma from 2014, so four years on. And I realized that grief is part of life. We have to, we've just not been taught how to embrace it. And actually there is so much g- gifts in, in grief because we can actually talk to those people later on. We can actually see them, you know, within day-to-day basis, whether it's like a bird, a plant, an animal, you name it. But we've been taught to fear grief. And this is the problem. Like we need to really just embrace it and allow ourselves to have those shit moments and then be like, okay, what do I need to heal? And then embrace it. But again, not be hard on ourselves. And then we just move on with life. Mm. Wow. You really went through a lot. Oh yeah. (laughs) My journey has been crazy. Strong woman, strong, vulnerable woman. I appreciate, I appreciate that so much. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about how there's this shock factor when mm-hmm. we're in denial of something like death, like just any challenge that might come up in life, right? Uh, when we when we deny that and we choose not to invite an awareness of death or grief into our lives, or when we just assume everything's going to be great, challenge isn't going to going to come, like the good times will last forever. Then when something does happen, when someone dies or when we encounter a challenge like, you know, a health concern or a car accident or any or stubbing your toe, <laughs> I mean, anything, <laughs> what happens is if we deny that and if we don't assume that loss will happen and that challenge will happen, then when something does happen, before we can even get to the grieving part, we have to go through this whole like intense shock that it's even happening because I can say that that's absolutely what happened to me. You know, when my three friends died, 
you know, unexpectedly, and they were all around my same age, it was then that I had to even deal with the shock that young people die and that we can die Mm -hmm. at any time. And I didn't even get to the point of grieving for over a year because I was really just reeling from that shock. And -hmm. so if we can assume if we can, you know, not inviting it in, right, like not spending all of our time thinking, waiting for the next challenge or waiting for the next loss, but just knowing, hey, Part of the spectrum of being alive is birth and death and rebirth and death over and over again. And part of the cycle of being alive is good times, bad times, and nothing lasts, that it's always this cycle. Then we can avoid that initial shock that can come with it, or maybe not all of the shock, but a good portion of that shock so that we can more gracefully embrace and go into the grieving and into the healing and into the shadow work instead of having to get caught in the shock loop like I did for a year I feel like and I don't know if you feel the same but you know you hear people going oh you need to get over it but there's no timeline you have to you you grieve it when you're ready you know and it's allowing your yourself to receive that medicine that you know you you know it might take you you know a long time it took me four years you know to to finally heal what happened you know when my grandma passed away it took it took that long period but what I realized is that's what I needed and I allowed myself not to feel bad about it and I think a lot of people feel bad that they haven't moved on from something and when people tell you to get over it what they're doing is they're making you suppress it even more which is the worst thing that could happen oh absolutely absolutely yeah, I don't know if you know that the band, the Foo Fighters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so the, the Foo Fighters have this song called Everlong. And whenever I'm in grief or, or not whenever, but sometimes when I'm really just having a hard day or a hard time in my life or I'm in grief, I listen to that song Everlong. And one of the lyrics of the song Everlong is, uh, let me see here if I can remember it. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll listen to to this song while I'm walking down the road usually uh, you can do it in your house as well but something about being outside under the open sky and I'll open up my arms because what you said is so important just now and so beautiful which is about when we stuff it down it doesn't go away mm-hmm. and the lyric is if everything could ever be this real forever if anything could ever be this good again the only thing I'll ever ask of you you got to promise not to stop when I say when And to me, that's me when I open my arms and I say, you got to promise not to stop when I say when and I open my arms. It's like Mm. I have the capacity to deal with whatever the universe gives me challenge, (laughs) loss, pain and joy and everything in between. And so when I open my eyes or my arms and I allow it to flow through me, just like you said, Gerd, it just it does something to where I just feel I feel like my soul can just pass that grief through. And of course, like you said, there's no timeline to grief. There's no timeline to a dark night of the soul. There's no timeline to depression, but there's something about remembering that number one, we have the capacity and number two, to open our arms to, to grief and challenge and loss, as opposed to tensing up and shoving it down. It just makes it flow. And it just, um, it feels human. Mm, that's so powerful and you know what you're saying is it's magic right being in that moment is magic where you surrender and just trust the process and what you're feeling that's the magic yeah oh 
I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh wow. Um can you tell can you can you tell us about the 12 week transformation program? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my favorite things is and one of my zones of genius is helping people number one, feel alive in our everyday lives. And number two, navigating big life changes. So those are two of the areas that I help people with the most. And so if you are navigating a big life change, whether it's something that you want to make a change this year or in five years, um, and if you are just lacking an undercurrent of joy and presence and aliveness in your life. Um, I love to take people through 12 week transformations to, um, to just work on wherever you need that injection of, as you so beautifully said, GERD's magic. One of my superpowers is that I'm like super duper present. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past. I also don't spend a lot of time thinking about the future. I could probably use a little bit more time thinking about the future than I do. <laughs> but one of my areas that I'm really good at is being super present and and zooming out. You said just so beautifully a few minutes ago in our conversation that some people don't even wake up in this lifetime. And to be able to zoom out on our lives and think about how that person that's annoying you and frustrating you, they are on their, they are a soul on their own path in life. Um, that it's, it's really helpful. And so zooming out, navigating life change and feeling more alive. Those are the three components of my 12 week transformation program. That's so beautiful. And I know so many people are just changing their lives because of it and because of who you are and the work that you've done. Man, I uh, I feel really grateful to have come into this work, and I I mess up all the time, but uh, <laughs> but you know that's the beauty of it is you know we're humble, and I don't know if I'm allowed to to swear on this, yeah, podcast, but I'm going to throw it out. One of my most favorite things is just to remember that I don't know shit. <laughs> I don't know shit. If you want to talk about surrender and freedom, it's like like that really helps me and even though that is true, what can also be true at the same time is that I possess wisdom that can help other people, just mm. like you don't know shit. And you also possess profound wisdom that can help other people. And just like you listening, you don't know shit, but you also possess <laughs> profound wisdom that can help other people. And so, uh, and so that's what I do is, um, I try to balance my humility with also knowing that, uh, I'm a total badass. Oh, that's beautiful. It just something interesting happened when you were saying that, which oh, it's like, oh, how can I put it into words? <laughs> it just like came through. She was like, oh wow. Um like sometimes the reason why we're struggling in life is because we're having a connection to our past life. So those low moments are a reminder that we're here to do something greater and that we don't need to live in the past lives that we lived before. Yes. Absolutely. And that past life can be eons ago, generations ago, or the past life and patterns and beliefs of our childhood. Yeah. I I want to go, I want to talk to you about Burning Man because I know you've been there, like, but a lot of our listeners haven't. What's, tell us about Burning Man. <laughs> oh, well, what a perfect moment to transition to Burning Man as we're talking about identity and releasing patterns. So I've always been a creative person. I, uh, I've i always loved to write. I've always loved to read. I've always enjoyed painting and making things. But 
you know, my parents, they had a big influence on my initial career path before I started thinking for myself. And so, of course, I followed in my dad's footsteps and went into corporate technology. And, you know, I ended up at Google for many years. And I always, you know, people would ask me, oh, you like to write? Oh, you like to paint? But I never wanted to say that I was an artist because I just felt like, you know, imposter syndrome, like Mm. everyone else is making cool things. Everyone else is a real writer. Everyone else is a real painter. I'm just like dabbling. I'm not good. I'm totally not an artist. Well, I had a, uh, a friend who told me about Burning Man many years ago. And for some reason, I just felt really attracted to this. I I really wanted to go. Also, my friend Dan Friedenberg, who I talked about, my friend who was a huge role model for me and who also died climbing Mount Everest, he was a a burner. He went to Burning Man for many years and it was a big passion of his. And so my, my curiosity was absolutely peaked. And as I started going to Burning Man, which for those of you who don't know, it is a a community and a temporary city that is built in the desert in a very remote part of the United States every year for the past more than 20 years. And it's, it's grown and it's changed over the year, but it's essentially at this point around 70 to 80,000 people come together and they live off grid for one week uh, or even up to 10 days. And they bring out camps and they bring out all the infrastructure and they bring out the most incredible large-scale outdoor art installations that you can ever imagine in your life. And it's really a playground for experimenting with your identity, connecting with other people, connecting with awe and art and curiosity and playfulness. And what the interesting thing that happened to me as I started going, I started going after I quit my job at Google and was just really on this path of self-discovery. So my first year was 2016. And a few years after going, and I got to witness, I mean, these art installations are literally like the the size of or larger than a house, a lot of them. They're just like mind-bogglingly big. And some of them are also really, really tiny. And they're, they're just the most wonderfully tiny, irreverent, surprisingly beautiful little sculptures and experiences. And when I realized that there's no board at Burning Man that tells a person whether they can or cannot bring art, it totally blew my mind because I thought for sure that you have to apply and then get accepted, but that's not how it is at Burning Man. Anybody can bring art. All you have to do is basically fill out a form that says, this is what I'm bringing. This is how I'm going to make sure that it's safe. And if I want to burn it, these are the safety regulations that I'm going to follow. And that absolutely blew my mind. And then my first thought was, oh, like that means that I could bring art. So in 2018, I brought my own sculpture. It was a large sign and it had lights on it. And it was a big sign and big block letters that said, you might die tomorrow, which was also the name of this movement that I had been creating and connecting with and researching for many years. And it was amazing. It was uh, just, it was also embarrassing because (laughs) something about Burning Man is that it takes place in this big, flat, open desert. And it's like miles and miles of open, flat desert. It's actually a dry lake bed. So in the winter, it's a lake. In the summer, it's a dry, flat desert. Wow. 
what happens then is when you make something in your garage or in the, like the small workshop that I made my sculpture in my sign is I thought it was this huge, big thing. And I was so excited. I'm going to bring this big. It was like eight feet tall and eight feet wide. And I was like, this is this massive thing. And then I got it out there and I was like, oh, it looks really janky. <laughs> like it looks so tiny compared to not only the vast expanse of desert, but the other truly like multi-story art installations that were out there. And I have a, just a funny story about it, which was so like I brought the art piece out. And as soon as I set it up, I was like, OK, this is like way smaller than I thought that it would look. And part of me was like, oh, my gosh, this is embarrassing. Take it down. But I was like, no, you went to all this trouble, like just leave it up. And I just I let myself be excited about it and was like, OK, I'm not going to take it down. Well, throughout the week, I would. And the thing is that Burning Man, you just set your piece up. It's not like you're at a trade show and you're like sitting there talking to people all week. It's just it's something that's out there for people to engage with anytime, 24 hours a day during that entire week. And most of the time you're not there. But sometimes I would sit some distance away and just watch people engage with this art piece. And so just imagine in the big open desert, a big sign in block letters that says you might die tomorrow. And what I would see is people would ride up on their bikes and they would get off and they would sit on the ground and just stare at the sign and like meditate with it, like really meditating on wow. their mortality, possibly for the first time in their lives. And I saw this happen over and over again. And sometimes I would go up to the art piece and I would talk to people and say, oh, you know, I'm the artist. What is this? What is this bringing up for you? And they tell me these amazing stories about when they first realized their mortality or when they had a near-death experience or when they had an awakening and when they felt the most alive in their lives. And I started to realize like this art piece was was even though it looks janky and it's not nearly the grandeur of so many other pieces that it was really special and profound. Well, the other thing that happened was one night around two in the morning, I went to go just check on the art piece to make sure that the lights were still working. Obviously, for safety reasons, everything has to be lit up at night because we're off grid and there's there's no there's no um, exterior lights. So I went oh, up wow. to the art piece and I noticed on the ground was a little shiny. Tr I was like, is that a trophy? So it's like I walk up and I pick it up and it is a trophy. And it is a little trophy and it's a golden statuette of a donkey's ass. <laughs> and on that golden placard, it says worst art at Burning Man 2018. My stomach initially just dropped. I was like, oh, my God, somebody hates my art. Like, it is terrible. I should have taken it down. And then after a moment of that, I was like, I got an award at Burning Man. Like, who gets an award at Burning Man, even if it is the award for the worst art? And the funny part, again, is like I've been thinking a lot about holding two truths and two sort of opposing ideas, which is, number one, I got an award for the worst art at Burning Man. And number two, even on Instagram after Burning Man, I had so many people posting pictures of my janky ass shitty sign 
<laughs> with janky lights on it saying this was the best art I've seen at Burning Man 2018. This piece wow. of art changed my life. This piece of art made me look at my life differently. This is one of my top Burning Man art pieces of all time. And both of those can be true. It can be a shitty janky art piece and it can also be radically life-changing. And I'll just close this very long thought. Thank you all for listening uh, with the fact that after that, it really helped me come into my own, into my identity that I am an artist. For the first time after that, I really started to say, you know what? The only person holding me back from saying that I'm an artist and me being an artist is me. Mm. And so now I can finally say with total, you know, truth, I am an artist, not because I brought an art piece to Burning Man, but because I finally give myself the identity and the license to say, you know what? I write. Maybe I write bad. I paint. Maybe I paint bad. I've made sculptures. Mm. Maybe they're bad sculptures. But guess what? I am an artist. Oh, that is magic. And what is beautiful is that it doesn't really matter what people think about the art. It's what it makes them think about the art. If that makes oh, sense. Exactly. So like it, it was the question that you were giving may have been so deep for some people that it scared them. And then for other people, it was like, shit, I needed to hear this because something was clearly happening in their life that made them go, wow, this was the turning point. So it, it was, it's beautiful art, no matter what somebody thought and gave you a trophy. It was beautiful because it's a question that many of us don't ask ourselves on a daily basis. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I think now I can see that art and being an artist is less about making good art and more about how does whatever you create, whether it's your outfit or your painting or your writing or the way that you landscape the bushes in your front yard, like how does it make you feel and how does it make other people feel? Because I can tell you when you wear an outfit that looks really good or makes you feel really good or maybe is like a little bit shiny or sparkly, that that gives other people the license to push the envelope with their own outfits or their own pulling down their own masks or being more bold in their own art or their own lives. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. And um, we are coming towards the end of the show. Um, I've just got a few questions left for you. Um, what are your five top tips for someone who wants to live their best life, but they don't really know where to start? Oh my goodness. Well, I, I always think how important it is to have purpose. Like humans are purpose making machines. We're always kind of looking for what's the meaning, what's the purpose. And the reality is I don't know. And I don't know that I will ever know. And I don't know that any of us will ever know for sure. And so my first two tips relate to if you are struggling to find purpose in your life, number one, make your purpose enjoying your life. Because you know, I look at my friend, Dan and Dan, he did a lot of cool things that sort of fit in with society's idea of success, which is he had a cool job at Google. He started the nonprofit. He had a really cool side hustle. You know, he had money, blah, blah, blah. But I wouldn't have been nearly as inspired by Dan if he wasn't as joyful, playful and enjoy life as much as he did. And so if you're looking for a purpose in life, make enjoying your life your purpose, because that will create ripples that will go far beyond that, which you will ever know. And then the second, the second piece is to, um, to remember that 
you know, a lot of us want to do good in our lives. We think, oh, I need to start a nonprofit. I need to, you know, write a book and sure, do those things. Absolutely. But don't forget the, that the way that we show up every day and, and how you live and how you listen to people and how you, what you wear and, you know, how you make the art of your life, whether the art of your life be your career or actual art or the way you smile and engage with people that that is, um, uh, it's, it's truly life-changing. It truly makes the world a better place, or it can make the world a worse place. If you, if you hide your light from people, if you, you know, don't do the work to remove your masks, you're actually doing a disservice to the people around us. Yeah. Your third? <laughs> My third tip is to, uh, you know, when I first had that realization after Dan died, that living like you might die tomorrow and, and realizing and embracing our mortality is a profound key to presence, perspective, clarity, urgency, awareness. I became really into this idea of, oh my gosh, death is this key. Death is this key. And I started doing all of this research and I found that it's like this ancient key. It's like, you know, it's, it's a central tenet of stoicism and it's in like a lot of country songs, like Tim McGraw, I'm looking at you live like you're dying. And it's, you know, a central facet of Buddhism and, uh, uh, you know, Christianity. And, um, and so my third tip is to just embrace all of the spectrum of life. And that's not like a flip a switch. It's really like, begin to open your yourself to the idea that death is as natural as being born, that challenges as valuable to our life as pain, and everything in between. So that's my third tip My is, is to really just try to embrace the full spectrum of being alive and understand that it all has purpose. Uh, my fourth tip is to um, cultivate in your life alive moments. So, you know, I've been grateful to experience awakenings in my life. And a lot of those came out spontaneously. And a lot of times, you know, if you're standing on top of a mountain, you can have this spontaneous moment where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. I'm so grateful to be alive. You feel your aliveness flowing through your body. And that's great. When you feel those moments of aliveness spontaneously, like, oh, there's, it's, it's just so beautiful. But we can also create moments of aliveness. And that doesn't mean that you have to take um, mushrooms or, you know, LSD to do that. While I absolutely support psychedelic therapy, I'm also a huge proponent of the idea that we can create these psychedelic moments of wonder and aliveness on any given day. Like right now in this moment, look up at the sky, place your hand on your heart, and then close your eyes and feel your aliveness and just say, hey, I'm alive. And you can do that for one moment each day. And I promise you, it will make you feel more satisfied with your with your day. And um, the collection of those moments through your life will uh, make you feel more satisfied with your life. And my fifth and final tip is to listen to GERDs. <laughs> it, truly, I just, I really feel your light. I really feel the grace and the humility and the kindness with which you do your work. And I'm just, I'm just really in awe of, 
of what you're doing. And I also feel a kinship with you. I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed. And so anyone who's listening, uh, my fifth tip is listen to Gertz because uh, you truly have a, a very special wisdom. And the fact that you have that wisdom and you're doing the work to share that with people is not easy. And, um, but you're showing up and you're doing it. And I'm so grateful. Oh, thank you so much. And you're amazing at what you do as well. I just want you to know that, that the work that you do is so meaningful in this world. And we need more people like yourself doing that because so many people are afraid to to listen from within and, and to know the magic that lives within them. It's a process. It's a process, right? It's like <laughs> doing the reps of just being our weird and wonderful selves, letting that freak flag, freak flag fly. <laughs> And it's better to be that than be boring. That's what I think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, just the last thing I'll say is that I heard this story about Michelangelo. And the story is that Michelangelo, whenever Michelangelo was going to sculpt something like, say, the David out of marble, he would get that big block of marble. And he realized that it was his job to take his chisel and chip away all of the parts of that marble that just weren't David until wow. the David was fully revealed. And so when I talk about Ooh. being weird and wonderful and letting our freak flag fly I really also mean not only creating your most vibrant life, whatever that means to you, but I also mean just destroying the layers that we all have of our masks and our self-doubt and our imposter syndrome and our fears until eventually our true self is fully revealed. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Kate, for just being yourself and sharing the magic that you have with us all. Mm, thank you, Gerds. Oh, what a beautiful episode with Kay. It really does excite me having these conversations about being sober. It's just when you're on the other side, it just it just really just reminds you how far you've come. And, you know, having these conversations, it, it just reminds me of who I was 11 years ago and who I am now. And it's they're two completely different people. I don't even recognize the version of who I am anymore. Like, oh my God, like if you haven't heard my episode, it's the episode before this and I'm talking about, I'm sharing my sober journey with you all and how I, it led to that and how I've healed it and how my life has shifted. Um, unfortunately, that is, it's the end of the show. But before I leave, I want to leave you with this quote. Turn your wounds into wisdom. That's a quote by Oprah Winfrey. Now, if you're feeling stuck in your life, you don't know where you're heading, you're overwhelmed, you're just, you're just feeling all over the place then direct message me on Instagram at IamGerds and let's have a chat. Or you can book a free complimentary session on my website at girdshundle.com and we will tailor a coaching program for you that will help you to finally transform trauma and learn to trust yourself so you can powerfully move forward with your life. Take care, my sisters. I'll see you in the next episode. And remember, stay happy, stay healthy, stay lit. lit.